0: Welcome to the You're New Books You're listening to New Network. Books and Geography,
1: the podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson, from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Nina M. Yancey, author of How the Color Line Bends, The Geography of White Prejudice in Modern America, published this year by Oxford University Press. Dr. Yancey, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks, Stentor. It's great to be here.
1: So to start off, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to write this book?
2: Absolutely. I did my PhD in political science at the University of Oxford, and it's my dissertation research I conducted there that informs my book. And so I study American racial politics and black-white race relations in particular, uh, and I'm interested in the intersection of geography and politics, so where people live, specifically where white Americans live, and how that relates to what they think about issues related to race. And in terms of what brought me to write a book about it, I think my interest in geography probably came from my own experience of moving between places. Uh, In my case, that's family roots in Louisiana, growing up in Texas, going to college in New England, and going to the UK for grad school. It's not a crazy story of mobility, but definitely one that made me aware of how my race was perceived differently in different places, how it meant something different in different places. And then as for my interest in, you know, race and prejudice, and particularly how race shapes people's experience of politics, I could probably point to the same background. But I think particularly in grad school, in my case, I became aware of the obvious point that Academic scholarship comes from people. It comes from people with specific experiences and perspectives. And again, totally obvious point, probably especially for listeners of this podcast who listen to authors talk about their books. But for me, it it really became real when I was meeting the authors of some of my favorite books and articles and thinking about how their experiences and perspectives would shape their work. Um, And in my subfield, recognizing the predominance of white perspectives. And that, I think, led me to ask some questions about the bases of knowledge and how we know what we know and and what we challenge in terms of the the viewpoints that so much scholarship is conducted from. So that led me, I think the intersection of those interests led me to be interested in in prejudice and place and particularly how race can shape someone's experience of their surroundings and and give them a particular view of the world.
1: Okay. Yeah. And so, you know, your book is focusing on the the perspectives of white people, both in your kind of case study area in Baton Rouge and then nationwide. And you say that one of your, your goals, uh, and your, you know, the way that you're approaching this is to treat white people as sort of active perceivers of their racial landscape, not just kind of reacting to, uh, you know, demographic variables and stuff. So can you talk about, uh, you know, why that, that shift in framing is, is important and how does it, uh, lead you to kind of rethink some of the existing theories about things like the, the racial threat hypothesis?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. And I should say that when I first started exploring this topic and getting interested in it, I, I wasn't really asking that question of myself. And I was interested in this hypothesis you mentioned, the racial threat hypothesis, which is an old explanation for a relationship we see between prejudice and place generally coming out of the 1940s South and this landmark finding that counties that had the largest black population shares were those that were most likely to have strong white support for the segregationist Democratic Party at the time. And, you know, there's a lot of interpretations of this finding over the decades, but generally speaking, you can boil it down to the idea that a larger black population in relative terms presents a greater threat to nearby white people in terms of competition for resources, in terms of political um, power they might challenge. Um, and there there we have this, this kind of term that appears throughout political science. And I was interested in that relationship, again, thinking about how geography shapes politics. But it was kind of during this course of study and kind of those reflections I was talking about earlier during grad school that I kind of started to ask, well, what does it mean to call a Black population, a threat, to rhetorically position the Black population as a threat. You know, whether or not people were, were literally meaning that or not, it, it still felt not questioned. And I think, you know, at worst, that implies, oh, nearby white people are victims of a threat when we know the truth, particularly in that 1940s study, is that Black people in those counties would have been at far more actual risk of harm uh, than, than their white neighbors. And so, so at the extreme, it's, you know, white people position as victims. But I think what ends up being much more pervasive in racial politics scholarship when you start to look for it is, is passivity, right? Just assuming white people are, are passive participants in dynamics such as anti-Black prejudice, as if, you know, they can't help but express certain views. And they're just, you know, part of this process and kind of reduced to totally, you know, neutral Actors or you know, just statistical variables. And I try to flip the script to both challenge that positioning of black people as threatening, but also to recognize a world that is much more diverse than you know passive racist white people being threatened by poor, dangerous black people. That's just an old trope that is obviously not representative of the world today. And so I flip the script by trying to really emphasize white agency and and see white people as active viewers of their surroundings with really diverse thoughts, but still looking through a shared racial lens from a vantage point that is conditioned by their position at the top of America's racial hierarchy. And so, again, I argue that the switch is important on theoretical grounds, right, to reject that default positioning of Blackness as threatening and to reproduce a white perspective that doesn't see white people as agents. But then also, in practice, I I think it opens up space to ask different questions. To ask about how white people might see a black middle class population as threatening in a different way, right? To ask how racially tolerant white people might react to different surroundings. To kind of break out of this idea of white people positioned as as victims of a threat. So that's the the real motivation for the book and and the argument that I develop over the course of the. The qualitative case study you mentioned in Baton Rouge, and then I apply and kind of test in different ways in the quantitative case studies that follow.
1: Okay. Yeah, and I want to ask about the, the relationships between those two parts of the book. So as, as we've mentioned, you have this qualitative case study uh, in Baton Rouge where there was this effort to carve out this new municipality that would be able to have its own school district in this mostly white uh, area of the, the city. And then you have your quantitative analysis that uses uh, public opinion surveys about things like welfare and affirmative action, where you're looking at kind of at the national uh, scale and doing, you know, uh, quantitative modeling of of variables and stuff. So why did you choose to do this kind of, you know, hybrid uh, study and how do the two pieces fit together and, and inform each other?
2: It is a great question because it, it definitely was a huge, a huge part of writing the book was, was making sure that the story could be woven together and it would have been a very different kind of book, probably easier to write in ways to have had the latter half follow from that case study you, you mentioned, which is about schools and cityhood and in Baton Rouge following that with quantitative analysis of opinions on education, school desegregation, similar issues. But fundamentally what I was interested in was this idea of a white perspective, how a, you know, largely empowered and and subjective and specific white vantage point infuses racial politics is, is relevant across different issues. And so I start with this qualitative case study in Baton Rouge, which obviously we can say, say much more about. Um, and, and I go deep in this one context to think about what, what does that perspective look like in practice? What evidence do we have that white people do indeed share a vantage point? And, and essentially by talking to people on very different sides of this contentious issue, I find surprising similarities in how they understand race, how they understand their surroundings, how they ultimately defend the color line. And I argue that this is evidence of that specific perspective a vantage point that, you know, screens some considerations out, makes other things seem like common sense to them. Uh, And and again, that spans across these diverse views. Um, And in bringing that to the second half of the book, I wanted to make an argument to show that these kinds of considerations are relevant across racial politics. And I I go to these two very quintessentially racialized issues of welfare spending and affirmative action, very classic issues if we think about how you know contentious political issues have been connected to to black americans and with the insane ban rouge i ask well what changes if we come to these classic issues if we go back to that classic way of studying geography and politics using survey data paired with census data what happens if we bring this approach that insists on asking well from whose perspective is this place being experienced what does that mean what are the power dynamics at play um, and so I, I ask those kinds of questions in these two quantitative studies to show the applicability of this white perspective of the importance of considering white subjectivity and agency of bringing power dynamics into racial politics scholarship across these different issues in quantitative methods. Um, and and I choose these two issues that probe both prejudice as something invested in, you know, what does that outgroup deserve? What does the black other deserve, which is what welfare spending is? you know, so known for for probing and then bringing up contentious ideas around. And also prejudice is something about what an in-group deserves, what um white people feel like is their uh, rightful, you know, their rightful opportunities and their rightful path forward, in the way that affirmative action can sometimes challenge ideas around that. And so in the boundary case study, I show the white perspective as it operates across these ideas about in-group and out-group. And then again in these quantitative studies, looking at in-group and out-group oriented feelings. Again, to kind of go back to where I started, to show the applicability of this vantage point to explore white vision across racial politics scholarship. So rather than going really deep into one policy issue, I hope that the book really promotes conversation about perspective, about um, normalizing a recognition of whiteness and how it influences uh, white political behavior, attitudes, um, and also scholarship across... A variety
1: of issues yeah and i i thought it was really cool as i was reading through the the quantitative section and you'd be like explaining this this result from putting you know three or four of these different variables together and kind of you know here's how we explain that and you'll be like yeah and this is basically what so-and-so from baton rouge was saying and, and give a quote from the, the qualitative section that like gets right at what your quantitative results were were showing um I thought that was, yeah, really, really I mean, good kind of <laughs> pulled the two sides together really nicely.
2: Well, I mean, I'm happy to hear it. And I also think it's, for me, it was important to, to humanize this whole project, right? Part of what happens in quantitative work, understandably, is we reduce people to variables. It's out of necessity to analyze survey data. But I think what can happen in that is, you know, what we talked about in terms of Kind of minimizing white agency and forgetting that these are people who are making decisions, who are experiencing their places, who are drawing or choosing not to draw on certain prejudices. And then on the flip side, we can dehumanize black people too, right? We forget that those two are uh, are full subjects who are being seen and and who are living and experiencing their places. So part of the, the pairing to me is also about that, about telling a human story. And so I'm, I'm glad that you noted and, and appreciated the times when the Baton Rouge interviews come through in the quantitative chapters too
1: yeah definitely uh so to talk now a little more first about the the qualitative side why baton rouge what made that particular case study attractive to you
2: so why i chose to look at baton rouge first stems from the fact that as i mentioned my family is all from louisiana so i had familiarity with the case and and the area, so so I I knew of its existence, but what makes it really relevant for my research focus is the case that you mentioned earlier, which is the case of St. George. So, to recap, part of the Baton Rouge area that is currently unincorporated, lying outside the city lines, has for about a decade now been trying in some shape or form to create a school district separate from the East Baton Rouge Parish school system. Uh, Parish is the county unit in Louisiana. And so they've been trying to create a school district separate from East Baton Rouge schools. And the current strategy they are using has been municipal incorporation. So creating a new city and the effort is currently stalled in court. They expect a decision next month. Um, But it has been an ongoing struggle that has been explicitly connected to a potential racialized impact and to Baton Rouge's racialized history of fights over schools and segregation. And so the simple answer to your question is the case of St. George offered me a really valuable opportunity to talk with residents about a local issue that was on the top of people's minds in which race and geography were inevitably intertwined. And so Super valuable place for me to do research and to understand people's perspectives on this issue in our local surroundings. And maybe to give you just a little bit more detail on the case, I gave you the intro. The you know, present-day and historical racialized dimensions become clearer if you if you consider what St. George looks like, uh, and then also what it was preceded by. So, in terms of what it looks like or would look like if it does incorporate as a city. It is a disproportionately white and wealthy area in a parish that is almost equally black and white. So the area is only about 12 percent black. Um, It has a median, excuse me, a mean household income, about $30,000 higher than the rest of the parish. Um, And it would be big. It would be about 86,000 people, one of the biggest cities in the state and would represent a major shift in students and school funding and in tax revenue away from Baton Rouge schools in the city of Baton Rouge. And so this impact alone brought some criticism about, okay, well, what is the racial implication of a successful incorporation effort? And then if we look at Baton Rouge's history and what preceded the St. George effort, Baton Rouge is home to one of the longest running federal desegregation lawsuits in the country. So essentially after the Supreme Court case, Brown versus Board of Education, Baton Rouge did very, very little to integrate schools. So in the 80s, a federal judge implemented a strict busing order by which children were zoned, or rather were sent to attend schools other than the ones that they were zoned to, traveling by bus, um, in order to achieve a better racial balance. This was not popular. And whereas in the 80s, about 60% of East Baton Rouge schools were white, by the end of the busing order, only about 11% were white having seen a huge departure of white students and families from the school system and also from the parish entirely. This, of course, coincides with suburbanization and support for highways and and other trends that promoted white flight. But we see this huge decline in the white population over the course of the federal lawsuit. When it finally ends in the early 2000s, East Baton Rouge Parish schools are overwhelmingly black and brown, overwhelmingly low income. And when federal oversight finally ends, there's a flurry of breakaway activity. So a few other parts of the area had already separated from the East Baton Rouge schools as soon as federal oversight was allowing the parish to, you know, have say over its own own actions again. Um, and and these efforts precede St. George um, and mean that it is a direct descendant of that lineage. So in some, you can see how both its impact today. The history that it follows from meant that race was overtly implicated and it was something that the organizers felt they actively had to defend, um, which was what ultimately made Baton Rouge a really valuable place for me to go and talk with people about this issue because it meant that race and geography were really top of mind and so, so a place where it was easy for me to dive in. One final bit of context I should mention is that totally by chance. I happened to arrive in Baton Rouge in the summer of 2016, shortly after Alton Sterling, a Black man, was killed at the hands of police. And then a few days after I arrived, a sniper killed three members of local law enforcement. And so I'd gone to study this contentious issue about race and geography. I happened to arrive and missed a hugely you know, tense time around these issues of racialized violence. And so that just on top of of the St. George effort meant that Baton Rouge was a really theoretically rich place for me to dive in and to talk with people and to ask how they understood what was going on around them.
1: Yeah. And so one of the important findings that you had from the case study was the white people on both sides of the same St. George issue were kind of working within some of the same frameworks for thinking about race so like even the people who thought of themselves as anti-racist and opposed the the plan on the basis that it was going to you know, create racial inequalities, they were still doing things like downplaying the idea that racial prejudice uh, was, you know, behind the supporters uh, views and things like that. So can you talk a bit about some of these these frameworks for thinking about race that you found in the, the white people that you talked to are across the, the spectrum of opinions on St. George?
2: Definitely. As I mentioned earlier, Prejudice includes how we feel about others and how we feel about our own group, and so as I looked at the conversations I had with right residents of the Baton Rouge area, I found these kind of frameworks, these themes that encompass both of those sides um, of prejudice: the kind of out-group oriented dimension, the in-group oriented one. And I I call these discursive practices ways that uh, the white respondents engage in these topics. What they Um, say in each category is different, right? They disagree with each other. They have different explanations for the motivations for St. George or for what the path forward is after you know the shooting of Elton Sterling. But what they fundamentally do is defend the color line in in those similar ways. And so, you know, like you said, one the the kind of first strategy I, I look at is denying racial motivations. And so this looks different when we look at people who are on different sides or even in the middle of the St. George issue, um, they have different ways that they would explain whether or not race was at the heart of the St. George organizers motives. Um, so, you know, the people who are in leadership or support of the St. George effort were consciously on the uh, defense were ready to explain and show why they um weren't racist and would, would would really express outrage at the idea that other white people were calling them racist, which was interesting, showing that they felt truly betrayed and would kind of point the finger back at people who had opposed the St. George effort, white people who had it in particular, saying, you know, this is just so hypocritical, um, you're benefiting and in all these other ways. Uh, whereas if you look at some of the people who were opposed to St. George, they would you know, at the start of a conversation, say, "Oh, I think you know it was obviously racially motivated," or "People over there are racist," and you know, I don't know people who live over there, etc. But then, if we started to unpack things, they would ultimately reveal hesitance to really stand behind that initial strong point of view, and ultimately reveal that similar kind of connection. So, if the St. George um, supporters or, or leaders had felt you know betrayed by this idea, oh, wait, we're supposed to stick together almost as if there was a pact between white people to not call each other racist, you actually saw evidence of that on the other side as well when people who were in opposition to the St. George effort kind of wouldn't fully back up their, their criticisms on the grounds that, oh, maybe there was something to do with race that was at the bottom of this. So I give that as one example of how what people would say would differ, but fundamentally what they would do in a case like that was deny the belief that race was really motivating actions and and was really behind attitudes that were behind things like the St. George effort or behind other issues um, in East Baton Rouge Parish. And over the course of of my analysis in Baton Rouge, I look at different strategies. I look at another outgroup kind of oriented one where in different ways, the white respondents essentially equate black and white and, and depoliticize racial categories. And then I look at strategies related to how white people feel about their in group and how they, in different ways, again, will generally prioritize the needs and concerns of white communities over black ones, and how they also would generally defer to the social order or want to uphold or reassert um, the norm that they believed had existed either at some time before, maybe before the Bessing order, or even just before the death of Alton Sterling and the officers. And so those four strategies together. Looking at those outgroup and in-group oriented feelings of prejudice, show that while there is a huge diversity of opinion among the white respondents, again they fundamentally end up doing similar things and, and kind of structuring their thoughts in similar ways that kind of come to the same end of defending the color line and 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 revealing the limitations. I argue of their perspective from the position of whiteness in the racial hierarchy.
1: Okay, and can you talk a bit about your experience as a black person interviewing all of these white people about racial issues? Yeah,
2: that's definitely something that makes my book, I think, a bit more different um, from, from other, other similar projects. Um, and that's not to say that the idea of a black person analyzing white attitudes and actions is, is anything new as, as, I, so many, I think black writers in particular have, have put it, it's been a key survival skill for black Americans to to observe whiteness with an ethnographic gaze to understand the ways white people operate and, and when you you know should be seen by them when you shouldn't. So it's definitely not an entirely new concept, but it is one that I got lots of questions about, to be honest, when designing my research and, and preparing to do, My fieldwork. And I think it's because of skepticism people had on a couple of grounds. Generally, they were worried that I wouldn't be able to get white residents of the area to talk to me. Uh, And I think they were worried that what my respondents said to me would not be true or would somehow be biased. And the reason I decided to go ahead regardless was. I mean, first, I wasn't so worried about people not talking to me. Partly because, you know, I'm I'm from the South. I'm very familiar with the area, and and felt like maybe I was getting this feedback from people who were less so. Um, because part of the legacy of Jim Crow is white people's ability to be very proximate to black people and still maintain emotional and social distance as needed. I think in general, people are just used to that proximity, and so. I wasn't so worried that people would be, you know, totally resistant just to talking to a black person and also should emphasize that I was talking with people about relevant local political issues, right? I wasn't asking them to you know, reveal deep dark secrets. We were talking about things that were topics in the news, topics in other conversations. And so that gave me confidence that I was going to be able to have an entry point into conversation, which I did find to be the case and then as for the skepticism i got around oh well what people tell you is going to be so biased you know i, I think it's it's a really interesting point but i pushed back against the idea that there is only one sort of truth or that there's only one ideal situation which is a white person interviewing a white person and i mean it was definitely my experience that people were aware of my race but i actually argue that that was sometimes a benefit i think People were probably more likely to bring race into the conversation because my presence brought race into the room, uh, and, and maybe it was actually easier for me to have some of these conversations than it would have been for a white interviewer. And regardless, if a white interviewer had conducted the conversation, that too would have meant that the interviewer's race was influencing it. So I would I would challenge the idea that that was you know some norm. Or, or some ideal that I should have aspired to. And I ended up finding it to be um, you know, relevant and and valuable to have my my race kind of subtly racialize um the conversations. And and again, I think I was able to in that setting um interact with people and and perform the appropriate kind of cultural norms and, and perform southernness in a way that that still made the conversations natural. And then I think the, the final thing I would say too is that there's this term I use in the book um, referring to myself as an outsider within. And this comes from Patricia Hill Collins's reference to the position of black women in the Academy, how we occupy both marginalized and dominant identities. We're kind of inside um, a particular system of power, but still marginalized within it. And I think that definitely explains some of my experience having these conversations because I was someone who had a legitimate connection to the area. I was the interviewer asking the questions. I was coming from an elite university, so I was seen as, you know, somewhat legitimate and, you know, able to, to interact with folks. At the same time, I was a young person. I was a woman. I was not someone who seemed threatening, I don't think, to most of my um, interviewees. And I had what we might call some qualities of a stranger, kind of like a mix of proximity and distance and I think that allowed people to maybe share things with me that they wouldn't have felt comfortable sharing to someone who was a full part of the community and I think it also gave me both access to the space and also a little bit of distance to to make an argument that I think my white counterpart wouldn't have made and that maybe someone who was from the area might not have made or would have would have made differently and so so in some I think I, I really Enjoyed the experience. I mean, I have deep respect and gratitude for all of my interviewees for sharing their thoughts with me. And I I hope that my work can help kind of challenge some of the assumptions we bring to our our, our expectations about what qualitative research should look like or or what kind of true, um, pure (laughs) interview data would look like. And instead, recognize we are always performing, we are always interacting with people. Um, in in ways that are shaped by parts of our identity, such as race and, and gender and age and and you know other elements. Uh, and so this is one specific version of what is true that I collected um, in in Louisiana. And I was grateful that I that I did have access, to cultural familiarity, um, and that I was met with generosity by my interviewees who spoke with me.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it? a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: Yeah, yeah, you had a, a really great reflection on all those issues uh, in the book. Uh, and I'm glad you're able to spell it out for us here on the podcast. So uh, now I want to turn to look at some of your quantitative uh, findings or a few interesting ones that I want to pull out and and ask you about. Uh, And so uh, the first one is that you find that white views on some of the, the issues that you're looking at actually kind of polarize rather than all moving in the same direction, depending on the, the prejudices that they hold and the demographics of the metro areas where they live. So can you talk about how you yeah. came upon these these polarizing effects in your data and then kind of what does that mean? Uh, you know, what conclusions do we draw from that?
2: Definitely. It's in chapter four, so the first of my quantitative applications, that I really dive into this diversity. And as you note, the polarized uh, attitudes that we sometimes see among white people, um, which obviously came out of Baton Rouge, this point that there was a huge diversity of reactions that are nonetheless constrained by a white vantage point or positionality. But in chapter four, I I really dive into that diversity. And I I do so by looking at white attitudes on welfare spending, and this is a, you know, totally quintessentially racialized issue. Um, and I and I'm looking at at data from 2000, so following the welfare reforms that you know sought to end welfare as we know it in 1996. Um, and I particularly look at welfare spending and attitudes on welfare spending, phrased as such, as opposed to the more neutral assistance to the poor. Because welfare spending has been specifically racialized in connection to Black Americans and specifically in relation to imagery, you know, kind of visuals of Black people who have been painted as lazy and therefore undeserving of support and, you know, responsible for their own poverty. So I'm looking at white attitudes on, on welfare spending and how it varies according to where people live. And I look at these different. Uh, attitudes and, and prejudices, and how they might react to different, you know, contextual elements of someone's surroundings. Um, partly to dive into this idea of white people as viewers. Right? If I'm I'm someone viewing my surroundings, what do I bring to that experience? What am I drawing on? And what do I see? That's kind of what I'm asking. And so I look at both traditional forms of prejudice, particularly the stereotype of black people as lazy. And I also look at racial resentment, a more modern form of prejudice that uses egalitarian rhetoric to explain ideas such as discrimination no longer being a problem or to argue that, oh, if black people could just work their way up like other groups have, they would you know have just the same economic outcomes. So I look at these different types of attitudes and I show that traditional prejudice which we know tends to make a white person more opposed to welfare spending regardless, that is more relevant in cases where somebody lives in an area with more Black people. The salience of race in someone's local surroundings increases the power that that prejudice has in predicting opposition to welfare. And if we think about that stereotype, the idea that Black people are lazy, race itself is at question here, right? You're using someone's race as an indicator of their work ethic. And so if you look in your surroundings and you see more Black people, that makes that prejudice more relevant. Then on the flip side, if we're thinking of that more modern framing racial resentment, that instead looks at economic disadvantage among Black people and says, oh, that's evidence that they're just not working hard enough. The cue there is the economic disadvantage. And so then I show if we look at economic context, and specifically poverty, a white person who is racially resentful and lives in a place where poverty rates are higher, they are more likely to be opposed to welfare spending than a person who's equally racially resentful but lives in a place with a lower poverty rate. And so in both cases, I argue that these stereotypes or or racial attitudes end up being more predictive Of opposition to welfare spending in places where the visual cues of welfare and the stigmas around welfare are more salient. So in both places, you know, whatever somebody says on a survey about whether they think Black people are hardworking or lazy or or where they score on a racial resentment scale, you know, in both instances, those responses are more predictive of opposition to welfare, where, again, the context makes welfare something more likely to be in someone's mind. But again, if we're thinking about, okay, well, what does someone actually see and what are they bringing to that experience? I see, okay, it's actually in places with a larger Black population that that traditional stereotype is activated and in places with a larger poor population that racial resentment is activated. So both show the kind of flexibility of prejudice, the responsiveness of prejudice as a white viewer might see a different surrounding in different metro areas. And then I also try to Dive a bit deeper again to explore a diversity of views across by looking at those different formulations. And then finally, I also say, well, what if you on either of those measures actually reject the stereotype or or have very low racial resentment? There, I also see that, again, that attitude is more relevant in a place that has either a larger black population or a larger higher poverty rate. But there we see people who reject the stereotype of black people as lazy would be more supportive of welfare in a setting where race is relevant or would be more supportive of welfare if they're low in the racial resentment scale and live in a place where poverty is higher, right? Maybe thinking, oh, maybe there's more need to support welfare spending. So in, 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 in the whole of, of chapter four, you know, the goal again is to dive into this idea of, of white viewership and going back to this classic approach to studying prejudice in place using survey data and census data, but approaching that exercise with these ideas about um, white viewership and and the particular perspective that white people might bring to their experience in metros across the U.S.
1: Okay, and then... Another really interesting variable that you worked with and, and kind of calculated out of your, your survey data uh, was uh, what you call black relative status, where they had asked people, you know, how how rich they thought white people were on average, and how rich they thought black people were on average, and then you're looking at the distance between those. Like, do people think that black people are typically much poorer than white people, or do, you, do they think that? you know, they're closer in, in economic standing. And you know, the, the first thing that, that really jumped out was that, you know, some of the, the perceptions that people in the, the surveys had of this relative economic status were just like wildly off base from from reality. Like they thought that black incomes were catching up to white people during the, the Great Recession when that's the opposite was actually happening. Um, but then you also then use this this variable uh, you know, you link it into, uh, the people's views on some of these policy issues, like affirmative action. So can you talk a bit about how you, how you chose that variable to, to look at and what it tells us?
2: Yeah. I mean, first of all, thank you for that great summary of my findings. Um, and absolutely. I mean, this, this was part of the research that my, my, my time in Baton Rouge, my field work, my qualitative work in, in Baton Rouge really motivated me, um, to, to explore further in that I was interested in, you know, the flip side of what we were just talking about, which is the consistency of white perspective, how are the ways in which, regardless of whether somebody has racially tolerant or racially hostile attitudes, um, you know, what is similar about the way they might look at the world <laughs> in a way that reveals their racial perspective that, you know, reveals the way that whiteness influences how they interpret their surroundings. And so this is where I, in chapter five of my book, I really dive in and I'm and, and looking, as you say, on uh, white attitudes on affirmative action. Um, and so I I zoom in on this idea of Black relative status. And, and as you note, it's this measure of the gap between Black and white people in economic standing because I was interested in something that was not, you know, an effective feeling towards black people. It's not necessarily, do you feel warmly or coolly toward black people? You could be very racially liberal and say black people are poor because you have an awareness of the true economic circumstances of black people, maybe particularly black people who live around you. Um, On the flip side, you could say black people are poor because you're deferring to stereotypes that have, cast Black people as poor to an extent greater than them is truly the case. So I was, I was interested in that as a way to really think about something that was not the same as, as other racial attitudes that were more about likes and dislikes or, or bias or lack of bias, um, and also something that really captured the idea of material status and where different racial groups rank. Because if we you know think about why white people would share a perspective from the top of the racial hierarchy, you know, the premise is that we, you know, have a group identity. And if my group sits at the top of hierarchy, I benefit from that position, and therefore I have an interest in defending it. So looking at these evaluations of whether Black Americans and white Americans tended to be rich or poor was a way of thinking about how white people kind of viewed the world and understood where they stood in relation to other groups. And so I kind of zoom in on this this measure. And as you note, I find that surprisingly in this panel that I use that spans the Great Recession, so the same people surveyed in 2006, 2008, and 2010, over that time, this group perceives a narrowing of the gap between Black and white people in terms of economic standing. So they see Black people getting richer and white people getting poorer. And that is... Not only not what happened over the course of the Great Recession, as we know, but also that gap was most likely to narrow. That perception gap was likely to narrow in places where unemployment was rising the most. And so, you know, I argue this. Sh- this shows that white residents of those places, where they themselves feel their status is insecure, where they feel this economic crunch of the recession, in a kind of a zero sum thinking they react to that by feeling this status threat, this idea that Black people are catching up, even if we know that's not true. In all those places, Black employment, you know, started higher and, and generally rose more. Um, but the experience of economic insecurity or the fear of economic insecurity leads White people to interpret their surroundings through this subjective lens and to perceive this narrowing gap. That goes on then to predict opposition to affirmative action. um, and to and to do so, it's a small effect, but to do so alongside whether somebody has, you know, more racially hostile or more racially tolerant racial attitudes, alongside whether someone is a Democrat or Republican. And so I think kind of what this tells us is the subjectivity of white individuals' perceptions of of their surroundings. Um, Again, kind of thinking about what we saw in Baton Rouge and the very specific experience and perspective that the white residents had on their surroundings, even as they were different among them. Um, and then, yeah, then again, yeah, the consistency, right? The fact that if, even when looking at different um, other attitudes among among white Americans, this perception of, of a status threat in, in this group holds, it um, still has an independent Effect in, in predicting someone to be more opposed to affirmative action, which is a policy we know is intentionally designed to change the status of Black people relative to white people, is intentionally meant to redistribute some opportunities to Black people in order to help them succeed. And so it ultimately ends up um, challenging what I was talking about earlier these ideas about, oh, a default poor, threatening Black population. Um, And and, and is is an opportunity, I think, to think more broadly about, oh, well, if we're not actually saying the black population is a threat to white people and rather recognize white people might be construing blackness as threatening through a racialized lens, that means we can recognize the ways in which something like an ascendant black middle class can also be um, a threat. Whereas that group is typically not what we think of when we think about um, things like racial threat or the ways that blackness has been construed as threatening.
1: All right. So, I have one more question that I want to ask uh, about your book. So, we've been talking this whole time about white people's opinions and, and perceptions and things, but you did talk to some black folks in Baton Rouge. So, what does their perspective add to your findings?
2: Getting to talk to, to Black residents was a real highlight of my my research. And interestingly, was, interestingly, was not something that I had initially thought would inform my analysis as much as it did. And so I sought out talking to Black residents largely as I was making sure I understood the history of the area of the desegregation lawsuit of the St. George case, um, and and getting kind of a, a range of perspectives as I was building up the case study, um, but. It ended up being, you know, a really key point of insight in just highlighting how similar the white residents who seemed to be in disagreement truly were, um, and and also bringing from the black residents their own ethnographic insight into the way that their white neighbors operated. And so, in the book, I talk about the perspectives of the black residents along the same four discursive practices that I use to structure my analysis of the white residents. And that's not to say that's because those are the same ways that the black residents kind of ideas and experiences are structured. And I try to be very honest about the reality that I I didn't set out to study a black perspective. And I don't want to claim to have uncovered one. But rather, in looking at those four practices, the the ways that white people in the kind of similarly defending the color line and seeing the ways in which the black residents um, challenge that. I mean, in some obvious ways in terms of, you know, being more comfortable to point to race having an obvious influence, not being liable to defer to that pact between white people, or rather to call out that pact between white people that I talked about earlier to, you know, not accuse other white people of being racist, Um, or to just obviously explain how their experiences As Black people, including many of them as Black middle class people, are still so obviously shaped by race, um, in kind of challenging this idea that there was some calm and order that just needs to be restored. That Alton Sterling's death, you know, had just had just disturbed. Um, You know, in so many ways, they basically um, not only challenge and offer a different perspective to what the white residents say, but they explicitly call out the ways in which they know that their white neighbors don't recognize there's is only one version of reality in Baton Rouge. And so it ends up being a really kind of key bit of evidence in, in my argument. And I think that really influenced me to bring in things like standpoint theory, which, you know, has historically been used to make for the points I've just been talking about, about the value that people who are Um, marginalized within a hierarchy can bring and illuminating the way it really works, right? Like if you want to understand how a system of power works, you should talk to people at the bottom of it because they're the ones who really understand. And I think that really comes out of my conversations with black residents Um, and in kind of learning that and seeing that in action in my conversations with them. It also really informed my argument about the, the white residents and what they don't see from the top of the hierarchy in so many ways, power is about what you don't think about, don't have to deal with, can choose not to know, can choose not to deal with. Uh, and so that the contrast of the Black residents' insights, I think, ends up being a really powerful um, comparison to, to make that point. It was powerful for me at the time, and I think it ends up being um, important um, to the book, even as it's not a full deep dive into what Black residents of Baton Rouge think about their surroundings. Um, and I recognize that there's, you know, it, it ends up reifying the fact that my book is about white attitudes. It is about white people. It still centers them in that way. Um, but all the same, I was so grateful for the chance to incorporate um, the black residents' perspectives for the ways that it informed my research at the time, informed the book. And, and for me, it was really meaningful in kind of bringing to life some of the arguments that I make in the book.
1: Okay, yeah, and I, I think that that was one of the many points in the, the book where you, you, you said, you know, more research can and should be done on, on this. And, you know, I know that's kind of a cliche for academic writing. We're always saying, you know, more research <laughs> is needed. Um, but I, I really think that your book, there's like, you know, a dozen different dissertation topics that could be built off of some of the things um, that you, <laughs> you talk about in your book. So that, that leads me to our, our traditional wrap up question here, which is to ask you, you know what are you working on next
2: these days i am staying busy as a practitioner more than a writer on some of these issues so i i currently work in economic development and workforce development and racial equity consulting so focused on the you know moving the literal manifestation of the color line in cities across the u.s but in terms of writing and thinking one thing that's really been on my mind to dive into a bit more has to do with recent conversations around work, how our relationship to work is changing, um, the future of work both due to the pandemic but also just what our economy looks like today. And interested in how that might intersect with some of what my research focuses on in terms of kind of historical ways, ideas about work and laziness and deservingness have been racialized, um, and kind of what role race could play in that conversation, because it feels like something that has not been fully explored. So that is something I've been I've been starting to think about, and, and we'll see what shape it might take.
1: All right. Yeah, that, sound, that sounds really interesting. So uh, thank you again so much for coming on the show and talking with me today.
2: Thanks so much for having me. All
1: right. You just heard a conversation with Nina M. Yancey, author of How the Color Line Bends, the Geography of White Prejudice in Modern America, published this year by Oxford University Press.